Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. I will now welcome Heli Chu to come and read uh, today's scripture in Cantonese, and then I will be back for today's teaching. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis chapter 6, 5 through 13, chapter 7, verse 17 to 18, chapter 8, verse 1, and 20, and chapter 9, verse 1. 耶和华就后悔罪恶很大 Noah的后代,记载下面, 在地上都败坏了行为神就对挪亚说方舟在水面上漂来漂去你们要养生众多,偏满了地。The word of the Lord. Today we begin, or we continue rather, our series that we've called In the Beginning. Uh, the series has been a look at the book of Genesis, uh, and what we've been doing over the last several weeks is looking at uh, the first chapters of Genesis, which kind of set the stage uh, for the world in which we live. It's very much the origin story uh, of the world in which we live in now. And today, we come to um, another pretty controversial story in the Bible uh, that reminds me a lot of week one of our series uh, when it comes to controversy. If you remember, uh, in week one, one of our series, we spent some time addressing the controversies of the creation story. Uh, But what we said then is that in the end, those controversies wrapped up in the the creation story, uh, that they they miss the the forest amongst the trees, meaning that the creation account was an attempt at communicating very important central ideas. Uh, And while the peripheral things that we might wrestle with are important and they need to be addressed, that's not what we're going to be doing in the story instead, or in the series rather, instead we're going to focus on the main idea. Uh, Those tensions, those same kinds of tensions, 
are actually very present in our passage from here in Genesis 6, looking at the story of Noah and the flood and the ark. Because for many, similar to creation, there's some questions uh, that come up as people read this story. You know, in the world of biblical interpretation and even scientific inquiry, Christians have debated uh, tensions in the story like, does this story present an actual global flood or was it more of a regional flood with uh, a narration full of intentional hyperbolic rhetoric interwoven with the theology of ancient Israel or how did all the different kinds of animals fit on the ark or why do so many other ancient cultures in the Near East have similar stories about a flood coming from that same time? Those are all really good questions uh, and we're not going to address any of them because... To wrestle with those, they're good, good things to wrestle with, but they're not the point of the story. Right? They miss, the, they, they miss uh, the forest amongst the trees. There are primary and fundamental truths being communicated in this story that are central to our understanding of how God works, and in particular, how God works throughout history. How we understand concepts like judgment and ultimately experience salvation, all of that is wrapped up in this story. And so... Those are the elements of the story I want us to look at today. Specifically, what I want to do is I want to take a look at the story of Noah and to see how it is a story of history, how it's a story of judgment, and how it's also a story of salvation. Okay, so first, a story of history. Okay, I need everyone to allow me for a moment to meander a little bit, right? Just take a deep breath because we're going to take what seems like a really weird detour off this story. But I promise if you follow with me, all right, we'll, we'll have a point coming all this. So take that, that deep breath because it'll be a minute before we kind of come up for air. Just brace yourselves, okay? You've been warned. If you're not aware, we currently live in a time when history and how we tell it is at the center of a lot of debate. Specifically, the debate often centers around who gets to tell the story of history and what themes ought to be emphasized in the telling of that history. So just for example, what we're experiencing right now uh, with American history, do we focus on primarily the good and the noble and the righteous aspects of our history, or do we focus and draw attention on the depraved and violent and unjust aspects of our history? Uh, in the debate around how to tell church history in particular, do we focus on the great works that Christians have done over the course of church history, or do we instead emphasize the idolatrous and wicked and self-serving aspects of our history, much of which can sometimes undergird part of our contemporary church life? What do we emphasize? I'm not going to settle that debate today either, except to say that the Bible is unflinchingly honest about how terrible the world and the people of God have been. It is unapologetically clear, though, that though there has been much wickedness, that there's also redemption available to those who turn from their wickedness and trust in the Lord. So if we take that principle, we can say that any attempt at telling history that is not unflinchingly honest about the terrible things in history or any attempts to reject the possible redemption that can be accomplished if one would turn away uh, from wickedness and instead turn toward righteousness. Without both of those things, it's a very unfaithful telling of story. That's a little bit of a side note. Because from the Christian perspective, 
The reason we can be so brutally honest and yet also hopeful is because Christians have a belief in a particular through line, a connecting theme of history. There's a theme that runs through our understanding, the Christian understanding of history. And without that through line, we miss so much of how to properly deal with history. Let me explain. Uh, I've been reading through this uh, book series that focuses on some of the great thinkers uh, of history. Uh, the goal of the, the series, of, of the book series, is to present uh, very fair and very nuanced accounts of thinkers like Hegel and Karl Marx and David Hume and Michael Foucault and many others who often get uh, stereotyped or they get misquoted or even condemned by those who too often don't have a, a real understanding of what these thinkers thought. And so uh, the, the book series is an attempt at a fair assessment that brings both the affirmations of their thinking, but then also brings critique from a Christian perspective. The series uh, has been, the series of books has been uh, an attempt ultimately to avoid the, the straw manning or the, the taking of an idea and creating the, the weakest part or, or the weakest uh, type of explanation of a particular idea so that it can be easily torn down. It's trying to avoid what has very much become the norm. Uh, the tendency today is to straw man other people's ideas so that they're very easily uh, torn down as opposed to trying to steel man the idea, which is, to, uh, which is to say have a very good understanding and present a very strong possible summary of an idea uh, and then go about critiquing. Um, I'm going to give you another little side note freebie, but I pray that we can be those kinds of people. It's important to note uh, that the strength of this series in particular, one of the strengths, uh, has been that we are in desperate need of people, especially Christians who are willing to do the hard work of understanding ideas before they start trying to tear down those ideas because we are a people who believe in the image of God in all, in all people. We are a people that believe in this notion of common grace, that God is doing things amongst other people, even if those people aren't Christians. And so because of that, there are things that we can learn from a variety of different people, even people who might, we, we might otherwise um, disagree with. Again, that's just a freebie, but let's be those kinds of people. But here's the point. The fascinating aspect of this series has been looking, again, looking at the thinking of uh, people like, again, Hegel and Marx and Hume and Foucault and their different approaches to history. Right? They all understand a different through line, a different connecting theme woven throughout history. So you have people like Hegel, and for him at the center of history is, uh, or the direction of history is human consciousness and the realization of human freedom. Uh, for Marx, famously, Karl Marx sees economic factors as kind of the centerpiece or the through line of history. Uh, Foucault, um, he was someone who believed that the driver of history is the concepts and the ideas that are communicated through stories and myths. And so if uh, a story is uh, believed, we can create different ideas from that story, ideas that very well might be true, even if the story itself that we're telling is false. So take the story of Noah's Ark. This story might simply be one that produces ideas 
that are true even if the story itself is fiction, and many would take that position. That Noah and the ark didn't actually happen, but sure, there's some things that we can learn from it, and we can trust that those things are true. We can see that in the time of Noah, people were wicked, and they were immoral and unjust, and because of that uh, wickedness, um, it undermined earthly flourishing. And so it could be just a fairy tale. It could be one of uh, Aesop's fables kind of a thing. And our main takeaway would just be we should live righteously, live morally, live justly so that we experience flourishing. And many, again, read a story like Noah's Ark in this kind of allegorical or symbolic kind of way. But one of the consequences of viewing history that way is that what we're left with is a lack of objectivity to the ideas of righteousness, morality, and justice. They become concepts that we've developed pragmatically uh, for just you know, practical use in everyday societal life. To bring our own perspective uh, on progress uh, is really just a matter of drawing on these ideas. They're not real ideas. They're not objectively true. They're just good ideas. So again, a story like Noah's Ark is told for the purpose of just some kind of social, util- social utility, which frankly is not bad. You know, David Hume uh, argued that justice, for example, was an artificial virtue that kind of sprung up out of our practical need for societal life. And to some degree, sure, an idea like justice has social utility. It's helpful to have. We don't have society without some concept of justice. But here is where the great thinkers like Hegel and Marx and Foucault and Hume uh, before them all go wrong, is that they struggle to see the extent to which, and for some they flatly deny, the ways that God is before and within and ahead of history. In pursuit of trying to understand power or consciousness and how they work or to try to figure out what drives history forward, there's often a, a short circuit in their thinking that misses the universality of God's power in and over and before and ahead of history. And so as a result, they spent a lifetime attempting to construct temporal understandings of these realities like righteousness and morality and justice. It's what philosopher Charles Taylor called the imminent frame. It's it's attempts to explain transcendent ideas within an imminent frame or within our, trans, our, our uh, temporal world. Right? It's trying to explain the transcendence within time. And one of the, uh, important to know, one of the affirmations of people like Hegel or Marx or Foucault is that they do recognize that things ought to be a certain way, but they completely miss why things ought to be that way. And though I, I genuinely believe there are things that we need to learn from their perspectives, there's a lot that they offer Human consciousness and economics and concepts used for social utility are not at the center of history. They're not at the center of what makes this world make sense. They don't produce the why of the oughts in life. And from a Christian perspective, again, we believe that because there's a God at the center of history, these aren't just ideas, ideas about righteousness or morality or justice. There's an objectivity to them. They're actual real things because there is one who is transcendent above time and space who has insisted that those things be part of the world in which we live. Now, why spend all my time talking about that and what the heck does that have to do with Noah and the Ark? 
It's because regardless of how one understands the details of this story, it's very important for us to see that the story of history is one of God working in history. The story of Noah's Ark and the flood that comes, the judgment that comes, is not just some motivating story for the purpose of social utility to keep us moral and just. Rather, it's a story about the objective nature of righteousness, morality, and judgment. Our obligation to those ideas as a result of them coming from God himself and the ultimate consequence that comes when we don't submit to his rule and his desires in these areas. Here's the crucial point, right? I spent all that time because of this. This is a story about how God actually worked in the past. And when we see how God actually worked in the past, we have a better understanding of seeing how God is actually working now and how God will actually work in the future. Why? Because he's the through line of history. And because he is the God who uh, is the end, the beginning, the one who never changes, we can be confident that what we see here in Genesis 6, the God who brings judgment upon the wicked in Genesis 6, is the same God who continues to be a God of judgment today and for years to come. That's why we must see that this is a true story about two things. It's true when it comes to judgment, and it's also true when it comes to salvation. So let's take a look at both of those. Okay, now you can exhale. We can come up for some, some air. All right, this is a story of judgment. Uh, one of the aspects of the story, of course, that makes us bristle is the way in which God judges here. All right, so in chapter 6, verse 13, let me just reread that for us. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy them and the earth. All right, now what exactly necessitated such a striking judgment from God? Well, uh, verse 5 says this. This is, God, this is the context for why God's bringing that judgment that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Then in verse 11, it goes on to say, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. The word evil in verse 5 and the word corrupt in verse 12 say everything about the point that I was trying to make a minute ago about history. The presence of evil assumes a perversion of something that is good. Corruption assumes a perversion of something that ought to be. Right? Something is not the way it should be, and so now it is corrupt. In other words, there needs to be some kind of standard, some kind of through line, that exists in order for us to call anything evil or corrupt. And that standard, right, the way things ought to be, is not given by uh, just ideas that we come up with, right? They're not uh, subjective things, but rather, the, the standard is given by one to whom we are all obligated to obey. God himself is the one who establishes the standard of how things should be. 
But if there is a standard for what is righteous and moral and just, then judgment is going to be the confrontation of our inability to be righteous or moral or just. And this story gives a very vivid picture of why judgment is necessary. I mean, you can hear it. You can hear that there was great wickedness of the human race, that there was evil all the time, that the corruption had come in various forms and, and had uh, perverted all of the creation. Now, when we hear that, we can have one of two reactions. There's one of two responses that we may expect from God. One response that we could get from God is that God just allows that evil to persist and that corruption to persist. Right? He could look at the wickedness of that day and he could say, eh, whatever. I don't care what they, what they do. I, I don't care. Let them live their life. You know, he could look at our modern day situation. Like, who cares that a white supremacist shoots up a grocery store? He could shrug his shoulders and say, meh, no big deal. However, if God were to take that posture, right, we would immediately recognize something wrong with that posture. Would we not? Why? Because put it in the context of an earthly judge who does the same thing. When an earthly judge has a perpetrator of injustice before them, and maybe a, a perpetrator that has time and time again been warned about the actions that they keep taking, if that earthly judge were to say, eh, whatever, they can do what they want, I don't care. You know, if the judge right now were to shrug his shoulders and say, I don't really care that you shot up that grocery store, what would be our response? We would say, you are an immoral, unjust, wicked judge, would we not? So why then would we ever expect God as a judge to not do all the more, to be committed to justice through righteous judgment? So I think it's at least fair to say that we shouldn't reject the notion of a God of judgment because we can think of plenty of people we think should be judged by God. However, the question becomes who is to be judged by God? What is the standard of judgment? And am I included on the list of people worthy to be judged? You know, it's interesting that I would imagine, venture to guess, maybe it's not the case for everyone, but I would imagine that whenever we start to come up with a standard or we come up with a list of people who should be judged, we curiously create lists that don't include ourselves. It's fascinating how that might happen. We are more willing to list ourselves amongst the Mother Teresa's of the world than the Hitler's of the world. And maybe on the spectrum, sure, we're more like Mother Teresa than we are Hitler. But if God is the judge, if he's the one who sets the standard, then how are we doing in relation to the standard that he has set? And what exactly is that standard? Well, Romans 3 which is actually quoting Psalm 14, gives us God's standard, which is simply that there is no one who does good. No, not one. Jesus argues the same thing in Luke 18 when he says, no one is good except God alone. In other words, God himself is the standard. And all those who fail to meet his standard of righteousness, holiness, justice, all fall short. So, if we cease seeing ourselves as the standard, if we cease creating lists 
of what is good, right, and true based on our own perspectives. And instead, we look upon God's standard of what is good, right, and true, and we compare ourselves to that standard, I'm going to venture to guess. All of us fall short of being God. And since the story of Noah is not a story uh, from which we just get ideas of righteousness and judgment and justice, but rather a story of judgment for those who reject God's standard, that standard of perfection we can't meet, we need to take this story very seriously. If we are not meeting God's standard, then we put ourselves at the center of this story of those under judgment. That is why we need, of course, to see this story of judgment against the people of Noah's day, but we also need to see this as a story of us today who fail to meet God's standards and as a result have our own waters of judgment coming. We need to recognize judgment is coming and that this is a story of judgment, not just against them, but also a story of judgment that we need to be confronted by. Which leads us, though, if we were to, I could end the story there, but there's more to the story. Because not only is this a story of history, God working through history, not only is this a story of judgment, God's judgment that has come and will come, it's also a story of salvation. Uh, we can't understand history without recognizing that God's judgment's part of that history. But if we stop there, we miss a huge aspect of what God's doing throughout history, which is saving. I mean, this story actually tells us how one can avoid judgment instead of exper and instead experiencing salvation. And it's also interesting to me that in the New Testament, the question about how we experience salvation is answered over and over again by the writers of the New Testament who actually draw on the story of Noah. As an example, in 2 Peter 2, Peter describes the presence of false teachers, and he's describing those who believe in the false teachings, and so as a result, they've rejected God. And he says in the first couple verses of chapter 2 that those who deny the master bring upon themselves swift destruction. But then he goes on to argue that if God did not spare the ancient world, why would we expect him to do anything different now? But that in the end, and that at the end, we cannot escape this reality of judgment to those who reject God. It's a running theme throughout the, the New Testament. Jesus himself also makes this argument that we can't escape the judgments that are coming. You know, Jesus, when he's talking uh, about the kingdom of God coming near, in Luke 17, and I have this for us, if you guys want to uh, throw that up for me. Jesus begins speaking of the coming day when judgment will again return to the earth. And this is what he says. He says, for the Son of Man, Jesus speaking of himself, for when the Son of Man in his day uh, will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Verse 26 goes on. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, then the flood came and destroyed them all. Right? So just as in the days of Noah, Jesus is saying God's judgment will come when Jesus one day again returns. 
And though God will not literally flood the earth in judgment, his waters of judgment will still come. It is a judgment that you and I, again, must face. But did you catch something else that Jesus said in that passage? Because while he gives a warning of impending destruction that's to come, he also provides us a clue as to how one might avoid that destruction in the way that Noah avoids destruction in the flood. Look at verse 24 of that same passage. Jesus said this, For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. There's going to be a great storm that comes when Jesus returns. But verse 25, But he, the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. What's going on there? What is Jesus suffering what is that? Well, I'm going to put up in front of you Peter's commentary about what Jesus is talking about. In 1 Peter 3, I know I'm giving you extra scripture. This blows my mind, though. This is phenomenal. I love this. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Peter says of Jesus, okay, catch what Peter does here. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned saints, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of the dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Okay, what's going on there? Jesus will one day bring the waters of judgment to earth. Right? He's already told us that a storm is coming when he returns. Judgment is coming when he returns. But before doing so, Jesus came not with the waters of judgment, but as we just saw here, Jesus plunges himself into the waters of judgment. Jesus Christ on the cross in his death takes that judgment that we deserved upon himself. But then we also see here in 1 Peter, in his resurrection, with all power and authority, he saves us from those very waters that he just plunged himself into. Jesus Christ is raised from the waters of judgment. And with that resurrection, Jesus becomes the new and the greater ark that shields us, protects us from the coming storm. Like Noah, who trusted God to protect him in the ark from the waters of judgment, Jesus Christ protects those who trust in him as their ark, an ark that raises us up above the waters of judgment that come when he returns. And one of the beautiful, thing that, beautiful things that Peter does here, the beautiful image that he gives us in verse 20, throw that up one more time. This is just extra. But in verse 20, he says, in it, in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. When we are unified to Jesus in faith, the waters of judgment become waters of baptism. Why? Because that which needed to have been judged, 
right? The old me that deserved the judgments of God are plunged into those waters. But then because I'm unified to Jesus, I'm raised up out of those waters so that now I have new life given by Jesus, becoming a new creation. The waters of judgment become our water of baptism, symbolizing new birth. Jesus Christ is our ark, saving us, giving us new life, and keeping us until the day when the waters of judgment recede. And all of creation has been baptized in those waters of judgment so that in the end, after those waters recede, new creation, new life, new birth is left. This is the hope of the Christian. This is the gospel message that yes, there is judgment because God takes seriously unrighteousness, wickedness, and injustice. But there's also salvation for those who trust in Jesus, our ark, who raises us above those waters of judgment, keeping us safe until that new creation comes. I pray, I hope, that we all trust in Jesus, that ark. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and commitment to us. Lord, we recognize that we are a people who, though we don't want to admit it about ourselves, we are a people who do deserve judgments because we have failed to live up to your perfect standard. But because you love us, you send your son who first plunges himself into those waters of judgment that he might then be raised up to become our ark, to protect us from the storm so that in the end we might be held close to him until one day those waters recede and new creation is birthed. So would you by your spirit help us to look upon Jesus, trust in Jesus, find our shelter and safety in Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.